Hello, dear friends, and welcome to Out to Lunch, the place where the good and the great and talkative have a bite to eat with yours truly. While we chat, my guests tell all their stories. It's the power of good food, I tell you. It will make anyone open up like a clamshell. Today, I talked to someone I have known and admired for many years. I've been to a number of his live shows, and I've interviewed him before, but never over a plate or three of food. Among other things, we talk about magic and why it's better not to feel happy all the time. He has a much better trick up his sleeve. It's mentalist, illusionist, painter, and author Darren Brown. No, I got a text from a guy called Dave who supplies me. No joke, just the words, I've got a kiwi in the back. Uh, Are you interested? It didn't sound comfortable. So Darren told me he doesn't really have any dietaries. He doesn't like mushrooms or blue cheese, but that's fine. We can dodge those. It meant I had the pick of any restaurants that I could find open in the current circumstances. Um, so I have brought him to Wild Honey, located inside the Sofitel Hotel in St. James's. Uh, it used to be located a couple of miles away from here, but the chef, Anthony Dimitri, moved it here a year or two back. He's a very good classically trained chef who sort of ranges far and wide across Europe and sometimes other bits of the world. His food is first and foremost delicious. It's not about, you know, fancy plating. It's comforting food done really, really well. Darren is going to have a fabulous lunch. And as a result, so am I. I too love my job. Let's get inside. Darren! Hello! I've just splashed water on me and I'm woefully unimpressed. That's... Have a, a, a seat which is socially distanced across... Across the table. Yeah. Stas gives us a bit of extra Doesn't uh, it? Space. Gives us yeah. Extra room. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a delight. So before we even get to the menu, I am interested as to, you know, a lot of your work is around misdirection or how we see ourselves or what's going on. I wonder whether I know you like restaurants because we've talked about that. Yes, yes, yes. And whether the world of the restaurant is itself a kind of a very benign form of misdirection from what's going on out there. That once you get to a restaurant table, the rest of the world falls away. Oh, that's very nice, yeah. Well, I lo- the idea of storytelling and the stories that we live by, that's very central to what I do. I mean, you know, magic is a, is a great analogy for how we see the world. It took me 20 years of touring to kind of realise this and sort of hoping to find a more sort of grown-up heart to magic. So, you know, we... We're in this infinite data source, and to make any sense of the world, we need to um, edit and delete that into some sort of workable story, and then we mistake that story for the truth. And when a magician's showing you a trick and you fall for it, it's sort of the same process. Our sort of, you know, our um, editing prowess is being exploited in the, in, in the same way. What a magic trick shows us is we is there must be other stuff going on that we've missed. I suppose yes, because there, there's the, the nature of. And I think this is John Berger who said this, but it was a lovely image, that the nature of... The art critic who wrote Ways of Seeing. Yeah, yeah. So his image is that stories are told round, you know, fires in a clearing, in a cosy setting. That's the nature of stories, that they are cosy. And if you take that image of the the cosy clearing in a forest, you've got all this dark woods. You've got the forest around you, which is all the stuff that's being excluded uh, uh, from that, Um, which... Is of course, in, in the Jungian world, is all the stuff that comes back to bite us. It's the shadow, isn't it? It's the stuff we exclude from our cosy story. There's uh, one story that you did a show where people kept falling asleep, going under. Oh, God, yes. Where was this? This was an early student show. So I'm in a hot little room. I think it was in Liverpool. So I do the induction. So I get a bunch of people up. 
do a couple of tests with them and then do this hypnotic induction over this group of say 20 people that have come up to volunteer but I've got you know a couple of hundred students watching I know it's going to take you know whatever 10, 10 minutes to do this induction so uh, I always used to say and don't worry in the audience this will not affect you but I thought it might be more interesting so I tried this once to say this may affect you if you find yourself at all like going under or finding yourself falling asleep don't sit there trying to fight it because actually that genuinely that can be an odd disorienting thing just go with it and if the person next to you just puts their hand up I'll come over and wake you up I just thought it would add a little bit of tension um, and make it more interesting how many went under? pretty much all of them by the, by the end of it so but it was an interesting exercise in kind of uh, or demonstration of the sort of group group hysteria so somebody went out at the front somebody collapsed out so I sort of paused what I was doing on stage and went over woke this girl up because her neighbour had put her hand up and then carried on with the group on stage and then a couple of minutes later she went out again so this hand went back up so I went back over and so now what's happening there's a seed in the air a seed of oh uh, this this could be slightly out of his control. So then, of course, somebody else who happens to be very suggestible in a kind of a hot, cloying room anyway, then goes out and another hand goes up. So now I'm, I'm losing grip of the show to have to deal with the audience. And that thing sort of spread throughout the room. So more and more hands start going up. So then I said, well, OK, well, look, it's hot up here. So because this girl kept, she kept yeah. at the front, kept going back out to sleep. And that was what was perpetuating it. So if I've woken you up, just go outside, walk around in the fresh air. Don't, don't sit here. I try and carry on with the show, but then I'm getting messages that people are collapsing outside in, the, um, in this sort of garden area. So then I have to go out. People are laying out on the grass, and I'm walking around, to be fair, a little bit like Jesus, waking, waking these people up. So the show never happened. It was sort of extraordinary. And of course, I never, never again did I say that it may possibly I've got to say, you know, I do a bit of, you know, I do quite a lot of live stage work in, yeah. in normal times. And... I can at least say that I haven't had one where the entire audience has been rendered not unconscious everyone, by everyone. my performance. <laughs> Food. Do you want yeah. to have a look at this menu? I've never been here. This is very exciting. All yes. right, so some background. Anthony right. Dimitri, with his then part business partner, Will Smith, had a restaurant called Arbutus up in Soho. Mm -hmm. And then they had another iteration of Wild Honey together over in nearby. Mm -hmm. And now it's here in the Sofitel Hotel, which is down at the bottom of Regent Street, or Lower Regent Street, which almost changed its name. Um, and this is Julian, who will be serving us. Hello. Hello. Um, so anything else you particularly recommend? Uh, one of the classics on this menu is the crisp chicken with the long-cut macaroni, cacio e pepe, which is the salt <gasps> and pepper. Which I've just started doing at home. Have you? Yeah, so I, it's a, clearly it was a huge thing in New York at least, and I, I don't think it really ever made it over here as a trendy thing, did it? But Yes. Oh, did it? Okay, oh, yeah, in the I, last two years, says cacio e pepe everywhere. And it's one of those things that's just, it's fun to make. I think I've treated it like a risotto, don't you? you have to sort of yeah, because the sauce is, it, yeah. so you use the pasta water, the pasta water yeah, and then you yeah. beat it in with lots of parmesan and lots yeah. of black pepper, and yeah. it is incredibly comforting yeah. and sounds sophisticated at the same time as being close to nursery food. So, mm. Darren, what would you like to start with? I would very much like the burrata, please, burrata. and then the bouillabaisse. And I will have uh, the chicken and cacio e pepe. Sure. Should I have the burrata or should I have the eel? What do you think? I would go more for the eel, to be honest. You go for the eel, okay. And then I will have the mackerel. Mackerel. Oh, and can we have some charlotte potatoes? You can, of course you can. I would like a glass of wine or anything. Are you drinking or are you not drinking? 
I think it would be it would be wrong not to. Yeah. I'd, I'd have a I'd have yes. a glass of Ooh and I do like a Gruner Feltler, does you do that by the glass? Yeah. Yes we do. That'd be right, but that won't it. What would I like? What would you <laughs> don't start <laughs> do I, do I have to guess <laughs> Don't have to guess what you're gonna order. I think you would probably I guess it should go the reasoning. Why, yeah, off? why not? Why not? <laughs> Thank you. When I um, first suggested doing this, yeah. you said, actually, I can't because I've got a lot of writing and painting yes. on. Wine is arriving. Marvellous. I mean, your paintings are, they're, they're portraits. Mm -hmm. So is this the product of someone who just loves being in the moment? I think there's something that stitches a lot of my interest together, which is a love of facsimile. Well, these sort of things appearing real that aren't. So I've always had a guilty pleasure in those kind of photorealistic paint, which mine aren't, but people do do that kind of thing, and then, you know, they're often... Well, those very, very realistic pictures yeah. you look at, and you say it's a photograph, oh, no, it's a pencil it's, yeah. drawing. Yeah, and I know they're, they're sort of sniffed at, and, uh, but I've, I've always just had a bit of a guilty pleasure in those. So I, I, I like things that feel real and aren't, which obviously, you know, ties in with magic and all sorts of other things. Most people listening to this will know you as someone who's done a lot of television, involving mm -hmm. a lot of people, that's very forward-facing. And yet, this thing which clearly means an awful lot to you is the reverse. I'm probably naturally a bit introverted, which isn't as much of a conflict as it sounds if you're a performer, I think it's probably quite common. So I definitely get shy if I'm in, like, big company of, of like if we if we weren't doing this and I was just a guest at dinner and the table was full of quite big celebi types I'd probably feel very uncomfortable uh, am I right in assuming that painting writing no dinner parties you must bloody love lockdown love a bit of lockdown um, <laughs> it's interesting how whatever that unsettling thing is still creeps in so my partner isn't working much so he feels a bit misplaced I'm just aware of, of how it can be unsettling but just in slightly slightly surprising ways particularly when you're in a relationship and living with somebody who may be having a you know, worse time of it than you are you published a book called happy which was about looking at the world through the stoics and mm. essentially don't go searching for happiness go for a form of contentment and then you've just published happier which is a sort of shorter version mm. of that with those mm. similar messages. How well do you mm. think the message of that, which is tell yourself a story, tell yourself everything's probably fine, how well do you think that stands up in the current circumstances? That's basically about stoicism. And the stoic idea is to separate the things you're in control of and the things you're not in control of. And you're only in control of your thoughts and your actions, which is true and then all the other stuff what other people do and what they think of you and so on outcomes in the world are things you don't have any control over so the stoic advice is just to decide all those things are fine and get on with what you're actually in control of because if you try and control things you are not in control of you're going to make yourself anxious and frustrated and the model of happiness is avoiding unnecessary disturbance so actually it's quite a good model because it's at least it's sort of concrete you can go okay how do we avoid mm. disturbance rather than trying to chase this you know chimera of happiness. In terms of getting on with your own stuff while all this, all this is happening in the world, minimally absorbing the kind of general mood of anxiety or, or the sort of stuff that's going on in the world, I think, I think that is helpful. It just reduces unnecessary unhappiness. Other than, so if stoicism is about bringing your center of gravity inwards and having this robust sense of self, which is, I think is great and very helpful, there's the opposite move, which I think at the moment is 
appropriate, which is about the, the, the things in life that are painful and are difficult. Those are exactly the times that join us up with everybody else. Those are those are the points of connection that we share. Those are those are when we're being shown the precise weight of life. And I think that's useful at the moment as well, isn't it? Because here we are feeling literally very isolated while at the same time we're all sharing in this. So we can lean into that feeling of sharedness as well. Oh, there's some starters oh, coming. There you are. So you've got smoked eel. I've got smoked eel. That was a good choice, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. Japanese artichokes. Oh, what's this? What is this? What treats this? This is a gouja. And you have some uh, hill riet inside. It's like a shoe pastry. And I've got the uh, slow-cooked crisp chicken with long cut macaroni, pecorino, cacio e pepe. First of all, this eel is phenomenal. That was That's a delicious bite. You know, it always comes to the point where I say, let me go back. But I do mm. want to take you back. As a kid, yeah. you're five years younger than me, but roughly of an age. Mm. And actually, that point in the 70s, 80s, there was quite a bit of magic on TV. Mm -hmm. Was it something you watched? Was, was Paul Daniels of any interest? Yes, yeah, so I grew up with uh, watching Daniels. Not only Daniels, but of course the guests that he would have on the show. So Max Maven, who was a great, or is a great uh, mentalist, mind reader, that I remember watching as a kid. A guy called Hans Moretti. I don't, I don't know if you used to watch Paul Daniels, but you very often have this German guy at the end that would do these amazing archery stunts. So, you know, he'd shoot a crossbow backwards over his shoulder and hit an apple on his wife's head. And, and um, he was doing all that stuff for real. David Copperfield's specials. Was that something that was in your head as, oh, maybe I could do that? Or was there another no, thing? No, not really. Not really, no. I Because I, um... all your biographies basically say you went to see a hypnotist when you were at Bristol University and then you thought, oh, I'll do that. Mm. Is it really as simple as that? Was that the first yeah. moment? This is Martin Taylor, the hypnotist, who I guess does a lot of college shows and so on. And it was a really, it was the first time I'd seen a hypnotist. Luckily, it was a, an intelligent, entertaining show without being humiliating, as I guess a lot of those shows are. It also bled into a sort of informal Q&A and so on afterwards. So there was definitely a chance of sort of learning and getting your head around this tantalizing, fascinating thing. And I remember, just laughing in disbelief and amazement, but not at the expense of anybody. So it was, a, it was a really great introduction to that. And I walked home from the Bristol Students' Union, which is down in the city, up the hill to the Hall of, of Residence, where I was living with my friend Nick Gillam-Smith, and I said, I'm, I'm going to learn how to do that. Do you think anybody could have said, oh, I'm going to be a hypnotist, or does it take a particular type of person? I think a weird thing happened that I'd sort of been... Like intimidated and, and not exactly quiet, but just sort of insecure and a bit odd when I was younger. And then in, in, when it got to sixth form, when it came to sixth form, everybody grew up and was very nice. And I think my way of dealing that was to sort of overexert myself. So it was all about attention seeking. And then that bled into university. So the, the desire to perform and be a performer kind of took all of that and made sense of it. So that really made, that was a big box tick, which I didn't quite know I had. And there was something inherent about hypnosis as well although I wasn't really aware of it quite at that moment but as time went on and I settled into that sort of role of doing it, it became also quite useful which is that that thing of control and um but also the exactly the sort of guys that would have intimidated me that quite beery sporty mm. crowd were exactly the sort of guys that would come up on stage and get hypnotized and probably be quite responsive to it so that feeling of sort of a bit of control over that area was, I think, really helpful too. Hold up! 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Also from something else. In July 2020, Ghislaine Maxwell was charged with recruiting underage girls for Jeffrey Epstein. Well, it turns out this isn't her first scandal. Robert Maxwell was going missing. Ghislaine's father was a media mogul. We had two really big media moguls. One was Rupert Murdoch, and then there was Robert Maxwell. He died mysteriously in disgrace. The more you know him, the more you dislike him. That led Ghislaine to Epstein. Daddy's little grifter. That's this season on the podcast, Power the Maxwells. Subscribe now. You've described yourself as almost accidentally becoming an evangelical Christian mm -hmm. at that point. You also, you were gay. Mm -hmm. Well, you are. Was there some form of question of control of self as well? You didn't come out until you were, well, Late. publicly until you were 30. Yeah, yeah. So at that point, was, there, was any of that going on? What you get very good at if you're closeted for a long time and you're hiding something that feels shameful on the inside, you get very good at creating dazzling surfaces. And magic and hypnosis, I mean, what a great way of avoiding the conversation of sex and... Classic misdirection. Yeah, classic, classic misdirection. So I think for a long time, and again, it's not a conscious thing, it's more sort of in hindsight of going, oh, yes, of course. Um, and, you know, I do live in a house that is intensely over-decorated and, you know... That, so I think, I think that is... Well, it you have 200 pieces of... Taxidermy. taxidermy. I think I came up with that number once when I was asked. Yeah, well, I, let's I've just stick with counted. 200. Let's stick, let's with, stick with that. Uh, a fuckload. How about that? A fuckload of dead animals. <laughs> <laughs> do you live with those objects because you find them comforting, because you find them amusing, because you like to walk around and be stared at by the beady eyes of a stoat that somebody, <laughs> or a stoat skin, it has to be said, that most taxidermy is basically the skin stretched over the yeah. a frame. What is the yeah, appeal? Exactly. Well, first of all, again, you're in that world of things that appear to be real and aren't. They're also inseparable from the kind of Victoriana sort of world, which I've always liked. But the nature of taxidermy, I think once you start, you it's a very collectible thing. I don't know if now, as a 49-year-old, I, I actually want my house particularly full of it. When was the last time you bought a piece? Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm really, I'm trying to cut down. I, I, <laughs> I get, I get offered. <laughs> so the other day I was walking through Bloomsbury and I got a, uh, Well, there's shitloads of taxidermy in Bloomsbury. We know well, that, yeah, mate. Yeah, the, no, I got a text from a guy called Dave who supplies <laughs> me. No joke, just the words, I've got a kiwi in the back. <laughs> Uh, are you interested? It didn't sound uncomfortable. So I, uh, I, he pulled up and he did, he did in fact have a key in the back of his van. I should, I should also say all the animals I have are ethically sourced, which is important. Which you kind of feel like you have to say, but it's true. So these are animals that have naturally, you know, passed on as opposed to 
you know, been killed. They, they haven't been killed to order, just so no, they can be stretched no, over a, I guess a chicken wire frame for your delectation. <laughs> no, horrible. No, they're, they're, they've generally kind of died in, you know, zoos or pets, people's pets and so on. Um, What's the or biggest? roadkill, probably. I mean, I mean, oof, nothing's been hunted. What's the biggest animal you've got? Uh, the sense of you mentally going through a roller deck, I know. And arranging the animals in order what's, of size. What's, what's you've bigger? started down with the emperor penguin. Have you got uh, a penguin? I've got a penguin. Yes. Yeah. Of um, course, yeah. Um, maybe giraffe. A giraffe. You've got a giraffe. Yes, a giraffe that passed away happily um, <laughs> in, a, in a zoo. Yeah, I have a, I have hey, a giraffe. Hang on. Uh, are we talking... It's a young giraffe. Uh, I have to say, not an adult giraffe. No, I've got two giraffes. I've actually got three giraffes. Is that wrong? <laughs> I've got three giraffes. I'll, I'll be absolutely it's two, honest. It's, I'm not sure it's one if there's a moral many, limit <laughs> on the number of giraffes one should have. I, I've, got to ask a, I've got to ask a question. It's a yeah. very obvious question, Darren. Yeah. How high are your ceilings? Uh, I, they are high ceilings, <laughs> but they're not, they're not full try. I have a young giraffe. Again, they passed away naturally. But a young giraffe... You seem to be avoiding the word die. Died, died, it died, but it died, yeah. it, died okay. it died naturally. It's a young giraffe, and I have then um, a sort of a head and neck, okay. and also a skeleton of a head and neck. So I think that probably counts as three, but not three full. No, no full size giraffes. Yeah, at any you'd point. be an idiot and have three full size giraffes. Ridiculous. It'd be ridiculous. Yes. It'd be absurd. Oh, actually, I'm going to stop because someone's bringing food. I think mm. it's main course time. Oh my word! There you go. Wow! My goodness! Thank you very much. So that's the fish element of the bouillabaisse. Yes. And what is lovely about these is the copper pots. And it's, yeah. uh, I would like to say, it's now like jets stacking over Heathrow in here. Yeah. Thank you. So you've ordered the bouillabaisse and you get mm. one copper pan which has various bits, cuts of fish with a seaweed mm -hmm. tartare and some fennel and then a big terrine of the bouillabaisse stock. Mm. I think that's really mm. on the side and it's all there. Yeah. I think you yeah. can assemble. I'm, I'm in. Yeah. Mm. It's one of those interactive dishes. One of the things, when I think I interviewed you early on about one of your shows, and it was, it was outside a theatre, but you were doing things like going to um, the Greyhound track and convincing oh, yeah, the yeah. bookies that you had yes. a winning ticket when you didn't. Yes. Uh, you went to a Millwall match and played Paper, Scissors, Stone. I did, very at home there, yeah, yes. You must have yeah. been incredibly brave. Yeah. And there was also an element of you showing how some of it had been done. Yes. Of the cues that you had used. Yes. Now, at that point, this is, what? Uh, first, first TV was 2000. Yeah, yeah Mind yeah. Control. Yeah. Where did the idea come from that you should show the workings, or at least some of them? Well, I, I'm showing the workings very much in quite heavy inverted commas anyway. There's a sort of implication that the answer's already given. Oh, he can do that because he has these skills and he's just demonstrating them, which is both a curse, because how do you preserve surprise and interest once you've kind of answered that question? Sure. But also is the sort of tantalising fun bit. So it kind of makes it difficult to get right, but also makes it kind of in interesting how you sort of tread that line. Penn and Teller do it a lot, they, the, mm. the American duo, they sort of show methods, but often the, as with me, the, the trick will be built around the fact you're going to show the method first, and then you work backwards to find the trick. I've, I've always thought, when people have asked me about magic and my love for it, yeah. and they say, well, it's just a trick. And I say, well, Oscar Peterson playing jazz piano, it's just a man pressing a bunch of keys in a certain order, mm. but that doesn't describe the experience of listening to him play. Mm. And I feel about performance pieces in exactly the same way. There is a phrase that it 
takes you back to your um, to your natural state of astonishment. And it's it was coined by a magician called Paul Harris, who's a tremendous magician, a huge name in that world. So that magic takes you back to your natural state of astonishment. So the idea is that you. Uh, as a baby, you know, the world is full of wonder because everything's new and then bit by bit we get used to things and our sense of wonder slowly decreases until everything's fairly familiar and only, only very rarely do we have that experience, but magic is something that takes us, takes us back to it. There was a, bun- a, a point at which a bunch of your shows, sometimes in the press, were called stunts. Mm. I'm thinking the Russian roulette yeah. one, uh, as recently as Push in which you did a setup and got people to think that they were pushing someone off a building. You became very complained about. Did you wear those complaints as a badge of honour? It doesn't doesn't really, to me, mean anything. um, When the seance show went out... Yeah, that really got That was the most complained about show in TV history, but it was only, it was maybe... Muzzle top. 200 complaints, thank you. It was maybe maybe 200 complaints, all, all bar 12, came in before the show actually went out. So it was mainly from religious groups at the, the idea of any sort of seance. So there's a lot of emotional investment for a long time making these things happen from all of us that are involved in it. As it goes out, my concern then, particularly with these shows that I do where it's some poor soul going through some huge elaborate thing they have no idea that yeah. they're part of. So all my energy as it gets towards the airing of that show is about making sure that person's okay and that they're taken care of and that they're then dealing with any aftermath themselves. Well, you've been asked about that in, in quite some detail yeah. because people said, Christ, what's the psychological impact upon someone yeah. who thinks they've just killed someone by pushing them off a building mm. and then discover that they haven't? Mm. And at one interview you did say, well, they're incredibly relieved. Yeah. You, you, I, I know you're a very thoughtful man. Yeah. Has there ever been any pause or hesitation? Uh, yes and no. I mean, no in the sense that there's not been a kind of um, a worry of like, oh, have we gone too far? But, but also yes in the sense that the whole process of writing the show and putting it together, part of then that is bringing people in that are outside of, the, of us and, you know, so independent. So have you brought people in to say, can we do this and will this? We always this? do. We always do. So, the, so there'll be a sort of audition process at the beginning to choose the person. The general process is they then need to go and spend time with, a, with an independent psychologist who knows exactly what's going to happen in the show and needs to make sure they'll be robust enough for it. So, you know, if you've witnessed your family member killed in a car crash when you were younger, it's, you can't be involved in a show where there's going to be something vaguely, you know, a car crash or something right. involved. We wouldn't want that. It's a dark journey, often, but the, at any point I can step in and end it. I can reveal the whole thing. I'm, I'm only ever around the corner when these things are happening. When we, when, when we did Apocalypse, there was... Uh, that's the one where somebody wakes up and believes they're one of the last survivors of a zombie. Yes, that's right. It's a, it's a two-parter, because there's quite, <laughs> quite a lot involved. So the first half is... Ending the world. Is quite Ending a thing. the world. That takes you know one part. The other part is waking up in um, in this post-apocalyptic version of the Wizard of Oz. Essentially, it's the, it's the Wizard of Oz plot. He works his way through to find his way home. Um, he's had his pyrotechnic end of the world experience. Is then hypnotised and wakes up. What will be apparently two weeks later. Of course, in reality, it's like an hour later. In this sort of hospital that's been abandoned, and there's a uh, there's mouldy food everywhere, and a um, this sort of broadcast of what's what's happened. There was this infection, and the m- meteor strike happened. So he walks into this abandoned canteen area of the, of the hospital, seeing this thing playing, and seeing this guy's face. And one of the reasons why we choose these people is that they read very well on camera. And he right. had this great face and these big eyes, and he's <laughs> watching this thing, which we're seeing in absolute close up of processing that. 
the world has ended and potentially everyone's dead and what you know what has happened and it was that I remember that moment of us all in the truck watching it and the emotional impact of that was sort of fuck this is this is because it was the biggest thing we'd done and it was fairly early on in the uh, you know, making these kind of shows. And I still have to return to this question. Is there not anywhere in the truck anybody going, guys, is it, it going to be all right? I think we're just, at that point, watching very carefully. So bear in mind, when those moments happen mm. and the show is written like this, that the moment you've kind of got a, a, a potential sort of trauma, like the darkest place they go to, it's immediately followed by relief. So their kind of emotional state is always being handled. So a second after that, he finds somebody. This, you know, he comes across somebody who then needs his help, and then and that becomes a, a, a I mean, different thing. Uh, uh, way back when, you yeah. said to me, for every moment of concentration, there is a moment of relaxation. Relaxation. Uh, this is a this is a magic, a conjuring rule. Yeah, yeah. It God. should be said that they volunteer, don't they? They want to yeah, be yeah. in a Darren Brown show. They volunteer. Show. They know that they're getting into some kind of dark, crazy world. So first of all, they have to get their heads around. Oh, now it's a TV show with a voiceover and music and... Um, and an audience measured in millions. Yeah, but also, like, bits taken out that, like, there was a bit in Sacrifice that meant a lot to Phil. So he watched it first on his own with me, with me then with these other guys from the shows, and then, weirdly, with Martin Freeman. So he was a big fan of Martin Freeman, who I happen to know. So the third watching was with him, so by that point he could kind of feel proud of it as a TV show and enjoy the fact Martin was watching it and so on. And then you've got to make sure that, so then he goes back home, but now his family are going to see it. So we had people, we sent people out there to be with them and with the family and make sure they watched it before it went out. A social media expert to talk through how you deal with that. And then you get, what about the actors that are involved in the show that are manipulating somebody? And in the push, they had to do it four times. Manipulating somebody to murder or whatever. The amount of care that the, <laughs> that the actors take is often, like, when it comes down to it, more. The guy's normally taken care of in terms of, you know, we know what, we know what they're going through, but the, it's the actors we've learned as the biggest surprise in terms of how much care they take to well, make sure they're not. Oh, I mean, it should be said, in the push, yeah. what's interesting about it is you throw the whole narrative... Um, and if I'm remembering this right, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, mm. uh, the first one, actually, they don't do it. That's right, yes. Um, and then you yeah. go, but we did it again and we again did. and yeah, again, yes, and you got yes. someone who actually did do the yeah. push. Pudding. Oh, yeah. Oof, wow. Okay. Out to lunch. Oh, custard tart. I don't think I've ever had custard tart. You've got to 49, is that right? Yeah. Without ever having a custard tart? I think so, unless that's rhyming slang. But, yeah, I think <laughs> so. Maybe I should... Yeah, maybe I should go for that. I think yeah. you should. Golden Sultanas. Excellent, yeah. I'm in. Yes, it's sorted. Excellent. And I will have the Clementine Sorbet. Of course. Thank you. Do you ever still do no, close-up cards and no, stuff? No, it's like, I feel it's like a muscle that I've, I've lost. I've let go. I, and, and it's... I think it's... Um, if it continues as a hobby, then I think maybe I would. You brilliantly described once about how you spent... This is early on. You were doing a particular trick, getting people to, you know, choose a card... And you wanted to get the card under the glass oh, yes. in front of yeah, them. Yeah. And you couldn't find a way to do it by sleight of hand. And you worked out that actually what you need to do was create just, some moment of big reveal and do it while they weren't even paying attention. Yeah, or just do it casually. Yes, that's it's an interesting thing with magic that so much of the... Um, it's that thing you mentioned earlier of concentration and relaxation. If a magician asks you to pick a card and then you, you look at it and you put it back in the deck, you put it back amongst the other cards, and that's the moment of sleight of hand that it's going to be controlled into whatever or stolen away or whatever that thing is classically a um, a novice magician 
will lean forward and tense up at that moment. And even if you don't see what he's done, he's, he is signalling, or she is, they are signalling a, a kind of a... Yeah, it's a sort of... Something happened there, I don't know what it was. Whereas the experienced magician would just relax and li- physically you know, drop back uh, onto the back foot and just do it in a very casual, relaxed way. And it's amazing what you can get away with. So it's not really about the hand being quicker than the eye when it comes down to that stuff. It's just, again, the story that you tell yourself. Another great magician called Tommy Wonder. That's a name. It's a great yeah, name, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yeah, probably yeah. why I became a magician. Mr. and Mrs. Wonder thought we need to prepare him for the stage? Because <laughs> our baby... Anyway, go on. Uh, no, his lovely idea when you're dreaming up tricks is that the dream of the trick, the story of the trick, gives you the highlights. When you know where the highlights are, you know where the shadows are, the dips in between. And that's where you put your, your methods. And the best and most satisfying magic just uses that rhythm. Nothing's being hidden from you, just not paying attention because that person doing the trick just knows where to place those moments to get you thinking and to get you sticking to the story that's compelling. Uh, it's, it's a, that's why I think that's why it continues even as a grown up to be interesting for me. Oh, hang on, here's a custard tart. It's a custard tart. Thank, Thank you very much. My first. Your first, <laughs> taking your custard tart cherry. Mm. Thank you. Mm. So recently David Blaine, mm-hmm performed a thing called Ascension where he went up 25,000 feet on a bunch of helium balloons and then parachuted down. Yes. Is that distinctly different from a magic performance? First of all, I'm really enjoying my first custard tart. Trying to take a moment Result, to Result, that's what that. we care yeah. about. Yeah, so he started off doing the sort of street magic, which was a genre that had been around for a while but not really on as a television thing. So it was slightly its own thing, which was phenomenal. And clearly what excites him are these just tests of, of, of endurance. And I saw him do his show in, at the um, Hammersmith Apollo a little while back, and I was uncertain what a David Blaine live show would, would be like. And him it was, in a box, two hours. <laughs> well, the second half was him in a, in a box. It was in, in, a, in, a, in his water tank, just holding his breath. And there was no kind of artificial drama to it. I don't think there was any sort of countdown or anything like that. And the whole show was... was Stunning and unlike, unlike anything, and I really sort of got it and discovered a whole. I mean, I liked him anyway, but really discovered. Did you go a whole back new, afterwards? I didn't. No, not that night. I had but to run off. And would that. you? I'm just curious. In the in the fraternity of performers, yeah, we'd normally would you, say. Would you after, say? Yeah. How did you do that? How did you do that? No, no. There, there is an awful thing that happens with magicians. They tend to feel. Uh, not so much amongst the sort of professional fraternity, but amongst a lot of jobbing magicians that they feel they the, have to uh, let you are know. Are those the, the overly professional amateurs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They feel like they have to let you know that they know how you did it and give you notes. It's a bit like if you were a, a respected comic mm. and somebody that was, you know, uh, either just starting out or was just great at telling jokes in company would come up and feel it was their place to tell you how you could do your act better. There's a lot, there's a lot of that, so I think... The flip side of that is if you... Um, if you're in the business, you don't know. If you're in the business, you'd never... Well, and also you wouldn't dream of... You, someone's just bled for you for two hours, you know, quite literally, actually, in, in, in um, these cases. And, you you know, you, you treat that with respect it deserves and not, you know. Um, before we wind up, yeah, I just wonder, did we sit in the clearing in the forest with the dark forest around us? Did this work in the restaurant? Well, for me, this has got me away from painting, and it's it has been cosy, and I think it's been a lovely, a lovely thing. I've really enjoyed it. It was definitely a, a delicious custard tart, and lovely to see you again many years later. Let me say formally again, Brown, thank you for letting me take you out to lunch. It's been marvellous, insightful, and I've lived very much in the moment. 
Oh, well, it's been a, it's been a wonderful series of moments. Thank you very, very, very much for having me. Thank You're you. You're allowed to finish your custard time. I certainly will. <laughs> Don't you make me leave any earlier. Mm. Darren is an endlessly fascinating chap. The book we were chatting about is a little happier, available now, and many of his shows are streaming on services such as Netflix. We ate at Wild Honey in London St. James's and delighted in dishes such as their smoked eel, their bouillabaisse Marseille style, and their cacio e pepe with chicken. And though we would never encourage you to share food during these challenging times, you could share some audio. Ask to be precise. Do it from the podcast app. Send a link and urge everyone you know to subscribe. We'd also love you to rate, comment and give us oh, what, five stars. Go on. It helps us to keep making more. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Jemima Rathbone was assistant producer. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's singer, songwriter and actor, Paloma Faith. I've also been told off for telling Samuel L. Jackson what to do. The PA just whispered in my ears, like, said even Tarantino doesn't direct him. <laughs> <laughs>